welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 17. I'm Christina Susamar with my co-host, the wonderful Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Uh, greetings, Christina. I am wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> and I'd like to welcome everyone to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide as we travel each week through the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. Today we're going to have a good show. Christina. Uh, yes. When do we not have a good show, Glenn? That's a good point. I, I like all of our shows. We I keep thinking. All, we have all these wonderful masters in the healing arts arena that come and join us and share their expertise. I, I've, what more could we ask for to begin our yeah. week? <laughs> oh, it's interesting. I We always talk about, or at least I always think about, uh, people wanting only sound bites so that we should do really just a one minute show and then right. at the at the <laughs> it's yes, called twitter it, <laughs> i was at a i was at a talk the other day where they said the attention span of a person now is no longer the uh elevator ride it's now about 2.7 seconds <laughs> attention span of people but i think at the end of each of our shows i always feel like i wish we had just another hour I know, isn't it? Well, that that gives us the great excuse of bringing people back and continuing the discussion and 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 really living in the present because uh, so much of the information these days with how technology is moving, everything's shifting, everything is changing. As what you were mentioning with genomes now, it's that's amazing. You know where science, technology, and everything we do is just kind of coming into one big ball that keeps revolving. That's true, and it's uh, fantastic. You know, I, I know when we spoke with Dan Diamond, uh, the uh, mm. Chinese medicine doctor, and uh, he was talking about the difference in Western medicine as we keep going smaller and smaller, and the Chinese uh, medicine goes larger and larger. <laughs> and I was thinking the other day that uh, I'm glad that we are going smaller because that's mm. where all the issues are, mm. in really small areas, and certainly we need to look at both. Yes. But... Uh, it's good that we do this, and there's so many things for us to know and learn about, and that's part of our process here to try and bring all of this current information from our great healers to uh, our viewing audience. Absolutely. So today, uh, I've been thinking about, I keep thinking about different topics, and I uh, came up with the fact that uh, women are so important in our society, with mothers and sisters and daughters and friends and spouses. Well, without us, you all won't be here. That is so true. <laughs> that is so true. So we need to honor that. And in fact, what we need to do is keep you all healthy mm. and happy so that uh, we can continue to be healthy and happy also. So mm -hmm. I would like to introduce to you my very special guest, Dr. Maria DiMaglio, uh, who is an, an obstetrician and gynecologist and specializes in women's health. Greetings, Maria. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. I want to introduce you to Christina. Hi, Christina. Hello, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, my pleasure. This is very exciting. <laughs> it is. It's always exciting for us, too, Maria. Uh, let me tell you and our audience uh, what we're going to do today. As the medical guide, I want to set the path for us. So first, we want to spend a little time learning about you and why you went into uh, the healing arts and medicine, and then how in your practice 
you chose to go into obstetrics and gynecology. And then we want to get into some of the uh, important issues of the day, maybe a few controversial, but we want to hear your opinion on uh, lots of different topics today. How's that sound to you? Sounds perfect. All right. So let's, let's start out with uh, give us a little information on when uh, Maria decided to go to medical school, why and what were the influences and how was uh, medical school and what made you go into obstetrics and gynecology? Well, I can tell you the when. That's very easy. I was a toddler. Um, as to why, I don't really remember why I decided at the age of two that I was going to be a doctor, but I can tell you that I never changed my mind my whole entire life. I never had any... Um, you know, oh, maybe I want to do this instead. It was just always medicine. So, um, born that way. How's that? Wonderful. <laughs> um, Boy, that's then, amazing. Yeah. And then when I was in medical school, um, as I was doing my different clinical rotations, I actually wasn't necessarily thinking OBGYN at first, but when, when I went into the rotation, um, fortunately, I was at USC at the county hospital. I actually spent my whole entire academic career at USC um, uh, as a third-year student because there were so many deliveries and so few resources as to people who could do the deliveries. I ended up delivering, I think, 50 babies in my three-week rotation. And it was... Wow phenomenal. It was, and I had done general surgery before that, and I loved the surgical field and surgical specialties. Mm. But what I didn't like about that aspect of it is just, you don't really ever get to know your patients. They come into you with a problem, you cut it out, you're done. And then I delivered a baby. And of course, gynecology also has surgery involved. And then you have the luxury of really getting to know your patients and seeing them year after year and developing long-term relationships with unique and very special women and it was just the best of all worlds mm. Mm. so that's why oh, wonderful. two years old that's amazing i didn't even two. know medicine existed <laughs> too it, it, you know i do believe it's the some would say it's past life yeah. <laughs> you just brought it right Park. through with you boy that has I to be true in this stethoscope and there i was <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing brilliant um, you know, today, Maria, I'd like to do something uh, maybe from a different viewpoint. Most uh, doctors that come in and give talks on uh, women's health, usually uh, gynecologists, obstetricians, uh, but they, they speak to the women specifically. I, I'm wondering if today, as part of the way we're speaking, certainly we're going to speak on the women's issues, but I'd like to have you address things from the viewpoint of teaching us, the men, about the women's issues a little bit, and so that we can learn to help and recognize and support them as they go through different processes. Does that sound something like we could do today? Easy. Oh, excellent. I was hoping that would be the answer. So but the questions will certainly be about the women's issues, but I want to make sure that we as men understand them and what women are going through and why they do things and how we can help them to go through things in a better way. 
So let's uh, let's just talk a little more personally. What's the most gratifying process for you as an obstetrician gynecologist? Um, I really think it's the relationship you develop with your patients. It's it's unique, um, and in particular, um, for instance, if you deliver somebody's baby, you are there at the most important day of that woman's life, and it's so special. It really is, and. Even on the gynecology side, on the flip side of that, you are going through a woman with all the different phases of her life and, and guiding her and, and helping her through that journey. So there are, you know, from every aspect, it's, it's gratifying. Let's talk about those phases for a few moments. Maybe you can give us each of the phases that you see and maybe uh, a point or two that we should be aware of. I know there's infinite numbers of things and we can speak volumes on each, but what's, what's the first phase that you think of? Um, well, we've got those wonderful teenage years, um, and having teenage daughters myself and, um, also being in the perimenopausal range, our household is just delightful right now. Um, <laughs> so from the guy perspective, patience, patience, and patience, um, <laughs> But um, there are, you know, as as a young girl is, you know, learning about her body and having to understand the changes that are going through her body, you know, that becomes um, very important right there. And then you go into the initiation of sexual activity, hopefully way after the teen years. Um, <laughs> but sort of when they're in the nursing home. A true there. mother of teenage daughters. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and then and then you go through the phase where childbearing, and then you you get into perimenopause and postmenopause. So, um, you know that's that's basically the range of what we deal with, and they all have their own specific and unique um, issues along the way. Well, okay, let's let's go along this path for a moment. So let's talk about the teenage years or the uh, pre-childbearing uh, years. It should. Should the father be involved in the discussions about the woman learning about her body, the young girl learning about her body and understanding uh, menarche or the beginning of the menstrual cycle? Should should the dad be part of that or, or is that all the mom's uh, path? I think it depends on comfort zone. I, I really think it's important for parents to be open with their kids mm -hmm. and have open discussions with them. But since since the dads haven't gone through this personally they don't have that same understanding not that they can't empathize or sympathize with the their daughters but sometimes it's uncomfortable for them so if it's going to make an awkward situation worse that may not be the best option but i do feel that if at least one parent is is close to the daughter in terms of discussing her body changes, her hormones, and what's going on in her life, you're, you're good. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, after all the men watch this show, I'm sure they'll feel more comfortable uh, with uh, having the discussion. So what's the next phase now, the childbearing? Uh, next phase is childbearing, yes. So um, tell us a little about what we need to know there, what's important. Um, I think it's important for the dads to go to as many of the prenatal visits as they can 
I know with work schedules and whatnot, that's not always possible, but um, you know, if if they can try to arrange it as a couple to be able to go to some of the visits together, um, absolutely the first visit, they should both be there. Um, you know, the ultrasound visits, well, those are too fun to miss. Um, and then, um, you know, in, in the last month, as the physician is, is discussing with the patient, you know, these are the signs that you're looking for. This is how dilated you are. This is what's going on. And also in that last month, if there are complications of the third trimester, they're more common in those last four weeks, like the blood pressure going up or some or something along those lines. So that when we have to, you know, tell the patient there's a problem and we need you to go to the, hus- to the hospital, well, the father of the baby's already there mm. and is be it can be there to support. We did uh, a program when I was running an integrative medicine program in our hospital. We did a program on uh, massaging the mother and then Mm. massaging the newborn. So we got uh, a program where the husbands would come in and learn how to massage their uh, wife or spouse or partner uh, through the pregnancy. And that brought them together. And then when the baby was born, immediately they did a massage on the baby. We saw all sorts of studies of cortisol levels going down and everything coming to uh, fruition really nicely with this. So relaxation in general is key. You know, key. when you're when you're uptight and you're freaking out and you're worrying about everything, it, it seems that things tend not to go as well. So something like massage that relaxes everybody, plus you've got that bonding with touch and everything. I think that's wonderful. So now we move uh after the childbearing years into pre peri and post does it, do people ever is is there a post menopause or does it just continue for the rest of life <laughs> yeah. oh god forbid post menopause but um the the peri is is when a woman who in has never had pms in her entire life suddenly you know has raging issues um right around <laughs> her cycle um the cycles start to get worse or irregular i mean i this isn't you know absolutely everybody but it is a, a majority of women there's some women who skate through and life is fine and god bless them that's wonderful um but but for the majority they do start to have menstrual irregularities and issues that can be quite severe um the and and uh, and some emotional rage can occur as well. <laughs> so all of these things are, are controllable. But I think from the husband's standpoint, again, open communication always helps to solve issues. So, you know, but, but not like, um, oh, my God, you PMSing again, honey? That's not going to help solve anything. But, you know, just, you know, are you, can I help you with it? Just. Be nice to the women <laughs> when they're when they're like upset and you maybe you know they're having their period. So just you know, just step back a little bit and and let them do their thing. But um, you know, as physicians too, we can we can guide the women to help reduce those symptoms and whatnot. So um, and help with the the when you really get into the throes of the hot flashes of the sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. can discuss different ways to. Um, reduce that. Not every woman needs uh, hormone replacement to um, to help get rid of it, but but a lot do. 
um, even though there are alternatives um, with herbs or acupuncture or other things that can help that, um, some women just need that estrogen. Um, and if they're going to initiate hormone replacement, what we do know now, based on all the studies where you've seen all the bad press in the literature, um, is that um, the time to initiate hormone replacement is within those first couple of years of menopause. Mm. And then, then you don't have all the, the bad risks that have been in the newspapers. Um, and then postmenopausally, um, you have issues with women then not not having the hormones in their bodies and, and things, you know, go awry. And so what do you, you take care of the women. How do we take care of the men when things go awry? Well, so that they can take care of the women. It depends on how they're affecting the couple. A lot of things that go awry with women postmenopausally are physical with, um, you know, a uh, bladder dysfunction or um, weakness of vaginal tissues. Um, those things may not have any impact on, on the husbands. Um, but if it's really severe, it can because it can affect their sex life. And so you're dealing with that. But, but um, at, at that standpoint, it's just educating, you know, the couple and saying, here's what you can do um, to make it better. Hmm. Okay, I think that was a nice brief uh, summary of uh, some of the phases. I like that. Christina, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, wow. I have so many thoughts. Yeah. Of course, you know, being a woman, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that was the trend that goes <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> Very interesting, you know, from the, the childhood point all the way through. Um, you know, interestingly enough, because uh, my mother's command of the English language was not very good. It was actually my father that actually spoke to me about, you know, uh, uh, the menstrual cycle and things like that. And then um, further on, that's interesting is, is, you know, being in a culture that you know, everything's very hush hush. You know, we don't talk about things like this. We don't talk about um, any issues or problems, especially when it has to do with any kind of sexual organs or anything like that. Um, and I made it a very strong point with my son that he understands that as he's growing up, because I felt it was really important that as Glenn, I, I think what you're saying is brilliant. How do men support women? If they are not brought up with the knowledge of what the female goes through, how are they going to know suddenly in their 20s or late teens how to support, you know, their partners? So I chose to start very early with my son that, uh, you know, at this age, you know, you're showering together, you're bathing together and everything. Well, why shouldn't he understand, you know, what is happening monthly, uh, you know, with my body? And there's a respect. And he even now knows it's like, oh, mommy's got her period right now. When she needs to go to the bathroom, she's got to go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, you know, and he knows to pass me what I need and things like that. There's no fear. There is, and he knows it's a private situation, so it's not to, you know, announce it to the world. It is, you know, our private and personal time. And, and I, I just feel that already that awareness in the young is already blossoming, will blossom into something else, where in the teenage years, he hopefully will understand, Maria, that the young girls who are going through this hormonal change, who are in his class with him, that he will, won't be affected in the ways that, you know, 
I think a lot of when I was growing up, you know, we were affected. It was like, oh, what's wrong with that person or what's wrong with this person? Why are they depressed? And you don't quite understand that. And hopefully he will go through his years where he will, you know, understand. I think that's a very valid point. And it's wonderful that you're educating your son. And, and that that is something I think that all parents should <clears throat> should follow. Um, and it's just to um, also to realize that that this is just normal life. This is normal development. And hopefully in some of the sex ed classes at, at schools there, this is part of the, the um, word that they're trying to get across that, mm -hmm. that this is normal development and this is what happens and you accept it and you don't um, uh, mock it or make a big deal out of it because it's just normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just Let's as I'm sure... Oh, Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm saying just as I'm sure that, you know, for guys, too, there are phases of development for guys that, you know, women need to be respectful of and understand what's going on with them as well. So. Yeah, I think we need a lot more information about uh, figuring out from both points of view what to do uh, and relate to each other. I remember once I wanted to teach a course in L.A. to uh, seventh and eighth and graders in uh, uh, talking about sexual education and drugs and they didn't want me to do that they felt that it was they were too young mm -hmm. to learn that and unfortunately at the same time I was delivering some of the babies of these young oh, no. uh, ladies in the emergency department mm. and I would look at the parents and say you know maybe it isn't too young but uh, it didn't happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Let's talk about a few diseases and uh, current treatments and guidelines and things like that in, in medicine. One of the controversial issues right now, of course, we all worry about cancer of the uterus and cancer of the cervix. And I want to talk about the pap smear in a few minutes. Uh, sure. But before we talk about that, there's a vaccine that has just come out a few years ago for uh, the human papillomavirus. Uh, the hmm. The vaccine, uh, which we've now found out is one of the major causes of cervical cancer, uh, which is part of the uterus, and a lot of there's a lot of controversy in this. Uh, people want the vaccine, want it, and other people who are not in favor of vaccines uh, think it's something that should not be out. What's your feeling about this? Um, absolutely. Well, here's the bottom line. Cervical cancer is a sexually transmitted disease caused by a sexually transmitted disease. It is caused by human papillomavirus. I remember when I was in medical school, we thought it was maybe uh, responsible for 60 to 70 percent of the cervical cancers. But now with all the um, enhanced genetic testing uh, that we have available, we now understand that cervical cancer is caused by human papillomavirus. It's, um, there are, the virus has many different strains called serotypes, um, you know, over a hundred different serotypes, but there are 13 serotypes that we know, um, to be responsible for causing actual cervical cancer. So, um, when you look at the vaccine for it, we are not able to develop a vaccine that can protect against all 13 of those serotypes. Mm -hmm. However, 
That being said, the vaccine prevents against the two strains that are most likely to cause cervical cancer, which are type 16 and 18. They're named by numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are responsible for 70% of the cervical cancers, and they tend to be the more aggressive strains as well. So it is not perfect, but it is the best thing that we have. And HPV has become so prevalent in our society because it was not something that was able to be detected well or prevented in its transmission for such a long period of time that we now know that it causes not just cervical cancer, but it can cause cancers in men. So when giving that vaccine, I think it's important that your sons get the vaccine as well as um, your daughters, because you you will prevent at least 70% of the cancers out there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't It's not going to do it 100%, so it should not stop the behavior of protecting yourself from occurring. But women have a screening tool. We have the pap smear, and guys do not have a screening tool, and... Um, which is part of the reason why it's become so prevalent in our society. Mm. What, what, uh, when you talk to uh, parents uh, about their daughters or sons getting the vaccine and they uh, have arguments against it, what are the arguments and how do you uh, relate to that? I mean, I think the big argument was, well, if it's not going to prevent it entirely, why do it? You know, that's, that's usually the main thing. Um, you know, the, the receivers of the vaccine don't like it too much because I'm not going to lie, it hurts. It's one of those vaccines that, you know, you remember that you got a shot for about a week afterwards. Um, but but you've got these girls going off to college or whatever, and um, they're going to be exposed. You know, HPV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, those are the things they're going to be exposed to the most, not to downplay herpes or HIV. Well, herpes they're exposed to a lot too, um, or HIV, but um, I think, you know, teenagers also have that sense of not me, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen to me. Um, and you have to say, no, it is going to happen to you unless you protect yourself. Is there so a cutoff still- age for the vaccine? Um, like 30 before the age of 30, because those are the years that you're most likely to get exposed. So mm-hmm. right now they recommend under the age of 30. Okay. Um, so, so HPV is uh, through uh, sexual contact. Yes. It's like that's is that the new kid on the block? <laughs> HPV has been around a really long time. The thing is, is that, um, and like I said, when I was in medical school, which is a few years ago, um, we knew that um, we knew that HPV could mm-hmm. cause cervical cancer, but we didn't have a way of testing the men. And the the strand that causes the cervical cancer is not necessarily the strand that creates warts. So if somebody has a wart, that's probably not the same serotype that's going to cause the cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And on guys, um, there just really hasn't been a a screening tool um, or, or a treatment for it. I don't, you know, there, that may be, developing i mean the the thing where the hpv um on a guy um uh is typically located at the tip of the pe- uh, the tip of the penis where mm-hmm. the the skin meets the mucosa from the inside so for a guy you literally have to like splay open the tip of a penis test it 
on women, when we're testing port, we're putting uh, uh, basically distilled vinegar. It's acetic acid um, to look for the cells with a with a big binoculars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once we've screened with the with the Pap smear, the next thing we do is we look and we identify that it's actually there and do a biopsy. I don't know too many men that would willingly consent to doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, although now that we're learning that it may be responsible for some male cancers, they might have, we might find more tools to yeah. treat it in men as well. But that's why yeah. I think it's important for the boys to get the vaccine as well, because they won't know if a girl has it, if she hasn't had an abnormal pap smear yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, are there specific symptoms that uh, they should look out for? Not really. That's just wow. the thing. It's one of those hidden things. You know, a woman can feel perfectly normal. Life mm-hmm. is grand. She goes in for her annual pap smear and she gets a call, you know, a week later from the doctor saying, hey, your pap smear is abnormal and you've got HPV and you've got precancerous cells and we need to check this out. Hmm. Interesting. Let's talk about the pap smear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot to discuss about the past. There smears. is a lot to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you uh, give the men uh, a, a brief definition of the pap smear and what women need to go through, and we'll find out what the guidelines are for how long, when, how late, and how often. Um, the pap smear is a screening tool for cervical cancer. And so in order to identify that, we put a speculum in the vagina and we have a little spatula and we just scrape cells superficially off the cervix and then we send them off for analysis. Much like when you're in high school biology and you take a Q-tip and you swab the inside of your mouth and then you look under a microscope at the cells from the inside of your mouth. So the swab just picks up the loose cells. Um, so that's the pap smear. Um, it can be a pap smear can show a lot of things. It can show inflammation because maybe somebody has yeast infection or they have inflammation of the cervix. Um, uh, but the main thing that we're really looking for is, is diagnosing cancer way before it ever starts. Hmm. So the guidelines, um, there are recent guidelines that have come out that have changed, um, significantly from the past. Um, it's caused a bit of controversy here and there, but I think what what you need to realize is that when people say guidelines, they are guidelines. They're not absolute, and you need to look at a patient individually. So they say, oh, you don't need the pap smear before the age of 21. You don't need a pap smear after the age of 65. Mm. If you've had a normal pap smear for a couple years in a row, you can go to every three years. That is in a very low-risk population. Mm. So you have to know your patient's sexual behavior and even the sexual behavior of their partners before you can follow that low-risk guideline. So, for instance, um, if we did not do a pap smear under the age of anyone, or for the anyone under the age of 21, we would miss some cervical cancers. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, the average length of HPV infection to cancer is eight years. Sometimes it's shorter. Sometimes it's longer. But if you had a girl who started having sex, and we know it happens, unfortunately, at the age of 12, and has had multiple partners from 12 until the age of 21, and multiple exposures, 
besides the fact that she probably has HPV, I'm sure she'd have a number of other STDs on board as well. That girl's going to be high risk for cervical cancer. And, you know, we also say that, okay, under the age of 30, though, you have a stronger immune system, so you're more likely to get rid of it by yourself. But what if that girl is um, malnourished mm-hmm. and, you know, just eats junk food all the time and does not have a strong immune system because she doesn't take care of her body? Um, then that's somebody who's going to be at risk, and that is somebody who needs to be screened. Um, if I have a patient over the age of 65, um, you know, who has had normal pap smears her whole life, um, you know, and she's with her husband of 30 years or whatever, then is she low risk and probably doesn't need screening anymore or maybe five years from now or something? Absolutely. But if I have a patient who's um, 65 and has a new boyfriend who's 48 and his past girlfriend was 25, she's got exposure. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, and for, you've got also the cases, unfortunately, of infidelity. But if I've got a woman who comes to me and says, oh, I found my husband's, you know, going out with younger women on the side, then they're potentially exposed as well. So it's mm-hmm. very important to know your patient's sexual habits and activity and what's going on to determine if they're in that low risk category for the current guidelines. I think that's a great uh, point in, in terms of guidelines, because women that might go on the internet and find guidelines, I think the real key is understand the guidelines, but also understand that it's very important to have a really good conversation with the doctor you trust to figure out, okay, those are guidelines for this kind of person, mm-hmm. but uh, you fit into a different category. So this is how we need to work on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's that we see that brings up a lot of anxiety for women are either false positives or false negatives. So are, th- are there things that women can do, uh, things they might want to avoid before they go in for a pap smear that would hope to ensure a much better test? I think we've, first off, we've gotten rid of a lot of the false positives and false negatives because once a pap smear is determined abnormal, it is automatically reflexively tested for HPV. Mm. Um, That's a very sensitive test. And if it's positive, it's positive. And thankfully, with that test, the false negatives are very rare. So if you have a pap smear that shows something that we call atypical cells, which aren't cancerous cells, they're just maybe inflammatory, a little off, they don't look perfect, um, and the HPV is negative, then um, what you probably want to do is just with your next pap smear, and based on your history, you can determine whether you're going to do it at six months or a year, Um, I would, even if it's a normal pap smear, just retest the HPV again. Make sure that HPV is negative a second time. Um, And then a lot of times the atypical cells, like I said, are just going to be something where um, uh, perhaps they uh, just got off their period. Um, They had tampons in. Sometimes women, the cervix gets a little bit of an allergic reaction to um, latex, Mm -hmm. to the condoms. But none of those are going to test positive for HPV. Yeast infection won't test positive for HPV. 
So the HPV that testing that we have right now has gotten rid of a lot of the anxiety of, I don't know if I'm okay or not. Mm-hmm. And that's that atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance, which we call ASCUS, 20% of those have HPV. And now with our testing, we can kind of be comfortable about the other 80%. Okay, as a guy, uh, what do we have to know in terms of having sexual activity with our partner, say, before they're going to have a pap smear? Is that an issue? I think everybody should be using condoms until they're really in a, a committed relationship. And I don't mean committed after a month. You know? <laughs> um, but that is you know? today's commitment. It's like the tweeting, right. you know, the 2.7 second atten- attention span. <laughs> right. right. In dog years. That's, uh, I don't know. You that's know, a lifetime. Most of the time, if somebody has HPV and they don't know they have it, your immune system does get rid of it, but it can take one to two years to just get rid of it. Wow. So, you know, if you're in a relationship, use condoms the first year. Please. Okay. In the um, pap smear, one important thing I think is that uh, what if someone has no health insurance, uh, does not have Mm -hmm. any money, but they still want to take care of themselves? Are there ways that they can find out how to get a pap smear? Well, there the family planning clinics all over the place. Um, You know, uh, there are free clinics all over the city. Um, and you can get pap smears there at either no cost if you can show the need for it or at a greatly reduced cost. Hmm. So absolutely, you can go to, um, you know, one of the county clinics, free clinics, family planning. They all do pap smears and they do a good job. Hmm. Let's, let's stay in the pelvic area for a little while longer. Uh, fibroids. People... Yes. Women get fibroids and have all sorts of complications. Mm-hmm. Can you explain uh, to our viewers what fibroids are and how they should uh, deal with them? Or what are some of the different ways of dealing with fibroids? Sure. Fibroids are benign muscle tumors of the uterus. They are benign. Um, and they are more common in African-American, Caucasian, and Asian populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of that, a woman can have one fibroid, she could have 30 fibroids. It just kind of depends on how her body, how many her body makes. At the moment, we don't know why some women make more than others. Um, and, um, we don't have any way at all of trying to prevent them. I know women who've gone on all kinds of, um, diets and searches, trying to find something to stop their fibroids from occurring or growing or whatever, and really nothing pans out. It's just one of those genetic things, and we really need to put a lot more research into it. Um, the main thing with fibroids is is basically the same thing as real estate, location, location, location. <laughs> they are... <laughs> They are, um, you know, they're in the body of the uterus, but whether or not they cause problems depends on their location and also their size. So if you have a fibroid growing into the cavity of your uterus, then you're going to have really heavy periods. You're going to bleed, often bleed in between periods. Um, women in really bad cases will hemorrhage and require blood transfusions, so they can be very serious. Um, 
uh, fibroids that are just in the muscle wall of the uterus or sitting off the uterus aren't going to cause bleeding problems, but they will cause problems just based on their mass effect. So mm. if you have a big old fibroid that's sitting on your bladder, you're going to go to the bathroom every three seconds. If you have one on the backside of your uterus that's pushing against your rectum, you're going to have constipation problems. So, um, and if anything, you're going to have pressure, um, you know, always. And they can also cause pain um, just from, again, from their mass effect. But well, so when you have your period and your uterus is contracting to get the blood out, you now have obstacles to the flow of the contractions and it creates a dysfunctional contraction and it can be associated with pain so that's that's kind of it on at least in terms of what the fibroids are and how they can cause problems in terms of of treatments um there are multiple they are pretty much all um but one uh, surgical um and it doesn't mean that you have to have your uterus out you can remove just the fibroids i've had patients who have a whole bunch of fibroids but their only complaint is the bleeding mm. and you go in and you do a vaginal procedure to remove the fibroid inside the cavity of the uterus um you know and so from that standpoint it's really having a discussion with your patient and what she feels is going to be the best for her mm-hmm. um you know, unless you're really worried that if she doesn't do a specific procedure, it's going to be detrimental to her health. But otherwise, I sit down and say, okay, what what's going to work for you right now? You know, some women are like, get my uterus out. Don't want it. Done. Mm-hmm. You know, and others are like, I like my uterus, but I just don't like the fibroid. Mm-hmm. 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 So, so do, when they say get my uterus out, I'm done with it. Uh, you obviously, again, this is... There, there may be guidelines, but each person is unique and should have a discussion with their doctor and say, okay, yes, I know you don't want to have children anymore and get it out, but there may be other consequences that you have mm-hmm. to be careful about. So having right. a good That's discussion. That's thing that you absolutely you have to have a nice detailed discussion. And, you know, part of the discussion can be leaving the cervix in um, and, um, and just removing the body of the uterus. Um, and again, that's one of those, if you've had somebody who's had normal pap smears their whole entire life and they want to retain, um, their cervix because they think it'll, um, uh, because it can be better for sexual function, then absolutely. But then again, if I have somebody who is having abnormal pap smear after abnormal pap smear after abnormal pap smear, it may not be a good idea to leave that cervix in. Mm. Um, so those are all things that are up for discussion. Um, there's also another, uh, procedure um, that's out there. Um, it's not something that's done by a gynecologist. It's called uterine artery embolization, um, where you uh, basically uh, put a little clot uh, plug in the uterine artery um, done through by going through the vessels in the leg. Um, it's done through an interve- with an interventional radiologist. And the ideal with that is that you um, reduce significantly the main blood or you cut off the main blood flow to the uterus and therefore the fibroids can't thrive and and they die it is um however Mm. does have a lot that procedure does have a lot of complications afterwards so you have to let people know that they might still need to have surgery after that sometimes they have to be hospitalized for pain so you know again it's one of those things you got to sit down and have a really good discussion with your physician Mm. 
What about uh, let's move uh, from the uterus to the ovaries right now. There's so many things that I want to ask you, but let's uh, talk about ovarian cancer. Yeah. Uh, When uh, I remember when Gilda Radner uh, from Saturday Mm -hmm. Night Live died of ovarian cancer, there was a big push for uh, people getting blood tests uh, to uh, define as a screening whether or not they potentially had ovarian cancer. Do you recommend blood tests for women? Um, frankly, there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to be very specific on that. And actually, the Gilda Radner Foundation at Cedar sinai has proven that. Um, they took a large series, thousands of women, um, who were high risk and not high risk for ovarian cancer. Everybody got a pel- pelvic ultrasound every year. Everybody got a blood test, which is the CA-125, every year. And they had no higher detection rate for ovarian cancer than if you did nothing wow. alone. Um, what they did have, which was a much higher rate of procedures and surgery for benign disease that um, caused complications for the women um, from that. Whereas, um, you know, if they had not been screened, maybe nobody would have known, and it was just a benign little tiny cyst that could you could live with for the rest of your life. And they ended up having surgery, and then they would have complications from the surgery. Hmm. So, and, and that was uh, really significant numbers of women were studied over like 10, 15 years. Um, it was uh, so. Unfortunately, there is really not a good screening tool. What there are good tools for is that if a woman has a known pelvic mass, then we have good tests to help determine whether or not it's cancer. And then, if it's cancer, those tests can help follow afterwards. So, um, you know, in addition to the CA125, there's another tumor marker called HE4 that's part of a test now that we call a Roma test. We use that Roma test when we have a woman with a pelvic mass to say, hey, is this potentially cancer or not? But as a screening tool, unfortunately, there's really nothing good. But that also brings me to the point of if you tell a woman over the age of 65 she doesn't need pap smears anymore, what will happen is most likely she will not get pelvic exams anymore because they stop going to a gynecologist, they go just to the internist, they're not getting pelvic exams, and and when she's got bloating in her stomach, they're going to test GI stuff like there's no tomorrow, and she's not going to have had a pelvic exam, and they're not going to feel that there's a mass. So women postmenopausally should not stop getting pelvic exams. So that's that's very important there. There's so many questions I have. I want to ask you quickly about... Uh, breast exam, breast cancer, uh, some of the uh, studies, the pre-screenings. You know, we talk about the controversy of are you getting, you're exposing someone to x-rays? Are there genetic testing? What? Give us a few moments on breast cancer, please. Um, <laughs> you know, mammogram is still the gold standard. Um, it's It has not yet been replaced. There are many things that are looking, and I think... Um, you know, again, you can look at a person's risk factors. Um, although, unfortunately, even if a woman has no known history of breast cancer in the family, of 
of other cancers that could be associated with breast cancer, like ovarian, prostate in men, colon cancers, um, they still have a chance of getting breast cancer. Um, so bottom line, at the moment, mammogram is still the gold standard. Some women, because of dense breasts or history, might need an MRI in conjunction with that, but you have to make sure that it's you're going to some place where they're comfortable with reading breast MRIs and they know how to read them, which in L.A. County is not an issue, really. Right. Also, ultrasound, thermography, uh, digital mammograms. A lot of new things are coming out to help uh, in the screening and uh, treatments. Yes, absolutely. Ultrasound, though, is really going to be something that's if there's a mass there, they can kind of tell more about the mass. But it's not going to detect those um, smaller microscopic. On, on mammogram, what you're really looking for is a classic little sign of calcifications that are in the pattern of a duct of, um, you know, one of the glands. Mm. So what you're going to look for is a little line of calcifications because uh, cancer tends to have more calcium deposits in it than normal breast tissue. So they're called microcalcifications. Um, thermography may, is hopeful in terms of showing things with heat and all of that. Um, but I think, again, it's still, you know, more needs to be done with it. What about, what about uh, a woman that's had implants? How is she followed uh, for screening exams? Pretty much the same way. I mean, I think, um, you know, especially in this town, we're all very used to implants. Um, and and uh, the radiologists are very good at reading, uh, reading films for patients with, with implants. So, and, and, you know, there's the, really the woman's, uh, where the woman has implants depends a little bit on, uh, or depends a lot on, you know, um, her discussion with the plastic surgeon, whether it's, um, you know, how they're put in, but it, that is not arbitrary. It also has to do with the size of the implants they want, the, the breast mm -hmm. tissue that she already has, and what's going to give the best effect. So it's not like you can go and say, oh, I want below the muscle implants. It may not work for that person. And are there new guidelines for uh, the screening exams like there were with the pap smear? Do you need to still get them every year, every two years, once you reach a yeah. certain age? You know, it's uh, screening at 40, or if you have a first-degree relative like a mother or a sister who got breast cancer before the age of um, 50, it would be 10 years before that person got there. So if your sister had breast cancer at 42, even though it's harder to read a mammogram because the breasts are more dense at 32, you need to start thinking, I need a mammogram early, not at 40. Um, but then again, you've got things like we also have genetic testing for breast cancer now to see if it's something that's going to run in a family. So typically we'll tell, um, patients that the, the, we'll find out if the, the family member affected with the breast uh, cancer was tested for the BRCA gene or hers. And if they had their estrogen receptors tested and, um, that will kind of help us determine the patient's risk as well. Mm. I assume also uh, the same as we talked about the pap smear. People that don't have insurance uh, can can go to some of these same places for the screening exams. Is that true? And it's 
Yes, and especially October. October's National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and that's the best time to get free mammograms because there are a lot available or reduced cost. So you can get breast uh, breast exams and mammograms for uh, much cheaper in October. Wow. You know, that, that was a great tip. I always ask uh, our guests if they have a health tip uh, based on their own experience and wisdom, and that seemed like a great tip. But I wonder if you have another tip for us for either the men or the women in this case. In terms of? Anything you think of, you know, from your point of view in your practice that you would suggest for people. And if not, I think the October uh, screening exam is really perfect. I think the most important thing for people is to, is to go to a doctor that they feel comfortable speaking with. And I know a lot of times people say, oh, but I'm limited by my insurance. And the fact of the matter is, okay, so you have to go somebody you're on your plan, but that doesn't mean there's only one doctor on your plan, mm -hmm. right? And so if you go to somebody and you just cannot develop a rapport with that person, find somebody else on the plan because it's your health and these things are going to be important to you later on down the road. So you need to have somebody that you can talk to or um, in particular for the elderly, you need to have an advocate who can help that older person as well. Mm -hmm. Christina, do you have any uh, questions? There's so many things that I want to ask right now from, <laughs> from the men's point of view. We want to talk about at some point. We may have to have you back on, Maria, because we still haven't even talked about hormone replacement therapy, libido. A number of categories, and I major. hope you would be. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's when we really have that, the men that's, watching that's and tuning in. Multiple, multiple sessions. <laughs> 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 we can do a whole series on that. <laughs> we we can do we can do a monthly series like every you know every Thursday a moment. <laughs> a moment with, <laughs> with Maria, Doctor Demiglio. <laughs> You know, what, what always uh, has really struck me when uh, I was uh, about a year and a half ago when I was in um, Pompeii uh, in Italy, uh, you know, they, they had the museums and they were showing all the artifacts that they had pulled. And they had in those days and even in Turkey, in the museums were the speculums. That were used that we used. I mean, they look identical to what you use Not today. Yeah, we're we're still pretty <laughs> medieval. <laughs> um, well, but it were. I mean, it kind of threw me for a loop when I was there to say, "Oh my gosh!" You know, the doctors way back when already had invented this or created this, and to this day we are still using it. Our doctors to this day, like yourself, are still using it. And I think that's magnificent. But no doubt for a different purpose. <laughs> yes. And hopefully ours are a little gentler than the ones back then. But yeah. <laughs> I think it's the person behind it. <laughs> so <to> say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a great point. I would like to thank our very special guest, Dr. Maria DiMiglio, for sharing her expertise and wisdom with us today. I would also like to thank all of my teachers and healers, and I look forward to seeing all of you next week with Christina as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Yeah. Until that time, I wish you all optimal health.
Goodbye, Maria. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank, you. Thank you so much, Maria. It's been a, such a pleasure to have you on the show, and we look forward to bringing you back. It'll be a delight. I hope I can come back. It'll be great. Thank you.